You know, one of the real privileges of hosting a podcast is to be able to have meaty discussions with people executives and executives that are really kind of reshaping the field of HR. And those conversations often cover tactics. They get into, you know, how and why they do certain things and kind of where they're taking the field of HR. Um, but oftentimes it gets into other topics around personal narratives and stories and approaches. And as the field of HR continues to evolve, one of the things that I'm certainly seeing is that we're able to have deeper conversations around things like empathy and courage and topics that not long ago we didn't touch, like mental health. And I'm really thrilled to be joined today by the VP of People and Places for Niantic, David Hanrahan. We get into a range of topics from scaling hypergrowth companies like Twitter, Zendesk, and Niantic, and then into some really meaty conversations around topics like mental health. I do want to mention that this podcast covers topics including mental health, depression, loss, and therapy. So if any of these topics are at all sensitive to listeners, um, you might want to give this episode a pass or just take good care uh, for yourself before you listen. So I'm really excited to get into that conversation with David after a quick word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called The Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am thrilled to be joined today by the VP of People and Places for Niantic, David Hanrahan. We're going to cover a range of topics, including David's career spanning a variety of companies, including Twitter, Zendesk, and his current role, and uh, many programs in between. So David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Why don't you give uh, the listeners just a quick introduction on you? Thanks so much for having me. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm David. I run the People and Places team at Niantic. I've been here for about a year and a half. Um, been spent, spent a lot of my career in tech companies, but originally um, started my career in a big, big oil company. So I feel like I've, I've seen different sort of industries, um, but you know, increasingly in these sort of hyper growth tech companies, which I've just I've had a ton of fun in. So thanks for having me. Yeah, so your your origin kind of into the field is uh, is probably a little atypical for a tech uh, HR executive. You know, you were you originally kind of drawn to the field of HR by your interest in in unions. And so, where did that come from? And kind of what did you envision you'd be doing when you first got started? Yeah, this this thing called industrial psychology was something that I came across in, in undergrad. I was originally in psychology as a sort of grad or sort of undergrad student and. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with that. I just, I loved human psychology. I loved abnormal psychology. I, I just, I kind of loved the topic, but I, I kind of struggled with like, how am I going to apply this in a way that is meaningful? And then I took a, an IO psych class and I was, I was fascinated with it. I saw it seemed as if there were some practitioners or people who, who actually applied um, this industrial psychology in the workplace. It seemed like there was a very real need for this. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be, you know, a counselor or a researcher or an academic 
And so my professor there in Arizona suggested I look into um, HR programs. And so I guess I guess by um, by some sort of sort of fate, um, I found a lot of these programs in the Midwest, um, these grad these grad programs, and a lot of these grad programs in what was called um, HR and industrial relations um, at the time. A lot of them were really born out of um, U.S. Uh, industry, sort of steel, automotive, um, you know, factories um, in the Midwest that. Um, these grad programs were born out of um, the labor movement. So when the NL, NLRA was passed and, and strikes and sort of workplace abuses, companies abusing workers was kind of um, was at a, at, a, at a really sort of, um, you know, kind of a difficult point in uh, U.S. history. Um, unions sort of sprang forth and then um, grad programs sprang forth as a way to sort of start to educate managers and leaders around how to actually engage um, with these unions now out of the NLRA. And so I, I went to one of these programs and I just, the first, very first professor I talked to was the one who taught um, pattern bargaining, uh, collective bargaining, U.S. Uh, employment law history, Professor Leroy. And so I was, that was it. That was like my, that was my entry into the HR um, sort of graduate world and, and sort of studying HR. That was the very first thing was, was this um, sort of labor history. And that, that was where I was immediately sold in part because I liked this professor so much. And um, I was fascinated with um, the labor history. Unions were starting to evaporate. They were starting to shrink. So there was this sense that, like, if you wanted to experience um, sort of a union, uh, a sort of union environment, um, that it was increasingly becoming rare and, and, and actually hard to, to get into. And, but but I, that was my first experience out of school working for Shell Oil, um, starting full time out of, out of school. The um, pattern bargaining was kicking off. My first day on the job was in a hotel room where the where the negotiations were taking place, and that that was that was my start. Wow! And so was it was your evolution from kind of that industry to tech something conscious? Was there something in you that said, you know, now I want to kind of take what I've learned and, and apply this in a different industry? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like the way the way I'll tell I'll tell my own story, which isn't necessarily the one for one sort of facts of how how it happened, but I'll I'll tell it this way, anyways. Um, in that first in that first week on the job um, in the in the hotel, what I saw was um, this this like a, a very first glimpse of a fascinating thing that I thought was theatrical, which was that the company and the union get into a, a hotel conference room. The union is wearing their blue coveralls. They take all these trophies and they dump them out in the middle of the room, and they say, "This is what we think about the company's latest proposal on the contract." And there was this theatrics. There was this, "Oh my gosh, okay, here's." Here's this posturing going on in this room. This is this is how negotiations happen. This is great. This is exactly what I was. It's exactly what I was hoping for. I was hoping for theatric battle of wills, you know, just so like we're gonna we're gonna sort of you know kind of posture with each other. And then from that moment, within within the within the same day or the next couple of days, I saw something very different, which was that um, that negotiations are actually not what happens in the room. When negotiations are what happens out in the hallway between the lead you know lead negotiators for each team. There's almost this sort of like, oh, that was great what you said in there. But I'm gonna, now I'm going to go in there. I'm going to say yes to this one thing. And you should say no to this one thing. And, and a much more disheartening sort of reality of, of how negotiations actually take place. Um, back to your question. I guess what happened for me over time was um, I was originally enchanted by the idea of, uh, you know, sort of like having more progressive practices on people was a byproduct of unions and managers working with each other. And more so, kind of a disenchanting reality that it's actually it's actually very slow. It's actually not very um, you know uh, sort of thoughtful. It's a little bit more political in nature. 
And I was, I was searching for something that felt more progressive. And I was just asking my mentors, you know, at the oil company and, and from grad programs, like, hey, where is progressive HR actually happening? And I heard this, I heard one of my mentors say, well, tech companies are doing some interesting things. You should, you should look for, for a tech company, like go West, you know? And, and so I, I wound up leaving, I wound up leaving um, Shell and then Universal Pictures, which also had unions on a lot, due to Electronic Arts, um, where that was like my first true sort of like tech tech company. Yeah. And so, you know, fast forward a little bit further down the road and you find yourself leading the business partner team at Twitter. Uh, really during their hyper growth period, I think they grew from around 600 to 3000 during your time there, kind of through their IPO. Uh, and so I'm curious, kind of in your role, when you're in that hyper growth mode and, and you're kind of leading the business partner team, so you're setting the strategy, you're setting the priorities, how did that, you know, that kind of growth phase impact how you prioritized your people strategy? It was, it was crazy. I think, I think when I joined Twitter, um, at about 600 people, I was just one of a couple of HR, um, people on the, on the sort of the broader people team, the recruiting team was quite big, but the, but the HR infrastructure was, um, you know, was, was kind of like not, not really there. And, and so my, my boss at the time, Janet, I was kind of, I remember I got lunch with her in the interview process. I'm like, yeah, so what's, what's my job going to be? What am I, what do you need me to do? And she's like, I, I, I don't even know. Just come on board, <laughs> come on board and there's going to be plenty of opportunity. And so, which, which wound up being the case, it was like, I, I got, I got on board and within the first couple of weeks, I remember Dick Costolo, the, the CEO saying he wanted the HR team in a room together um, with, um, with Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor. And, and so he wanted her and I didn't know who Kim was. He's like, I want, I'm going to introduce you to this person, Kim, and we're going to talk about management. And so I didn't know who Kim was at the time. This is way before she came up with Radical Candor. But I was in a room with this, uh, with this woman next to me and Dick and, and a couple other uh, the HR uh, people. And he's, he wanted us to know what we thought of this book by Andy Grove. Um, and, and we want to put management practices in place. How are we going to do that? And almost immediately, Dick and the HR team are working together to sort of put this manager training in. Dick led this manager training you know, for the next few years. Um, you know, it was, it was a lot of reacting, you know, like in, in when you're in this hyper growth mode, you're just kind of reacting and you're, tr you're trying to sort of get your head above water on thinking about, you know, sort of beyond the reacting, what, what are we going to need to put in place so that we're ready next year? What, what's going to be the thing right around the corner that we're not even ready for? You're, you're trying to constantly dig out, putting in, a, putting in your systems, putting in some, some basic policies, trying to figure out onboarding, trying to figure out these masses of people coming in. And then, and then reacting, you know, to the CEO, something the CEO wants, you know, or some other executive wants, and then eventually saying, hey, we need a business partner model. We need to sort of like have some, some model by which we assign business partners to teams or regions, and then making sure we have really good business partners who are helping to sort of identify problems and conflict further in advance so that we're not, you know, constantly struggling with sort of like employee relations and sort of reacting to those things. Because as you as you build in stronger skill sets, kind of in the HR team, then you're seeing you're seeing around the corner a little bit further in advance, and then you start to slowly feel like you're digging out. You start to sort of feel like you have eyes around the corner, which was like the first year plus of, of my time there. Yeah, so I'm curious. I think most companies that I've encountered that are in that hyper growth mode, you know, they they generally once you hit that period where you're kind of on the upward trajectory of the hockey stick. And everything is focused around uh, growth and hiring. And oftentimes, you know, your, your people practices, the infrastructure, the frameworks that are in place are the ones that were in place when you were a much smaller company. 
And now you're a much bigger company and you haven't really had time to thoughtfully adjust those as you've grown. And so kind of when you found yourself at that growth stage at Twitter, how much of your you know, people practices that were in place were, were scalable and supported that growth? And, and how much did you have to really kind of re-engineer once you hit a, a certain size milestone? Yeah, I think there was, um, there was like, when I first started, there was really no, there was no learning and development. So I got, one example was like manager training. Um, before, before Dick kind of put in place his, his first manager training, there was this, this thirst for manager training that we were supplying. We were sort of meeting that demand by bringing in a professor from Stanford at $20,000 a session, you know, <laughs> each, each, each time because people loved him. People love this, this one professor from Stanford. And so, Hey, we're going to bring, we're going to bring him in at a certain point that doesn't work and we need to build something in house. And so that needs to break. Um, or, or some policy that we have around sort of like team offsites and, you know, sort of spend, spend per person um, and, and the lack of rules on those, you know, that doesn't work anymore. We need to sort of put rules in place so it feels like it's being handled more fairly. Um, you know, the, the, there's, this interest, there's this interesting sort of dichotomy of like rules and objectivity and policies sound like, sound like corporate and don't sound like fun, doesn't sound like it's progressive. And, and so, you know, you, you're, you know, in startups, you, you, you try and like lean against putting rules in place. If you subscribe to like the Netflix model of like Patty McCord, like, Hey, we're all adults. I'm going to tell you how generally you should act, but I'm not going to put rules in place. You, you can, you can go that direction or you can go in a direction of like putting a bunch of rules and policies in place that people wind up not reading and that you can only, you can only break that rule later. And then what are you going to do when that, when you break that rule, there's that, that, that balancing act that I think I, I lean more towards trying to come up with like guidelines and being clear around sort of like in the culture of the company, how do we want people to act and, and only putting policies in place when it feels as though it's going to improve experience. It's going to improve um, inclusion. It's going to improve, you know, on, on an objective measure um, how we treat each other as opposed to it's like just putting a policy in place just for the sake of putting a policy in place. Yeah. You know, I really, I like the way you frame that because I think to me, that's one of the, you know, clear kind of delineations between legacy HR and modern HR, where legacy HR loved policy. And, and there is this, uh, this kind of, you know, compliance driven, uh, uh, kind of objective of like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Cool. Let's build a policy so that we safeguard ourselves against that. And it was stifling. And I think that's, that's what caused a lot of the function to take a, a credibility hit. So the way that you framed it, uh, in terms of creating more, you know, frameworks and let's assume more best intent and create policies and programs when they're additive to the employee experience, not just restrictions for the sake of restrictions. I think that that's, that's a very kind of clear distinction between, you know, yesterday's HR and today's HR. Yeah. I think as you're, as you're talking, I'm reminded, uh, reminded myself that at Twitter, one thing we did, we put a manager playbook together and it wasn't really policies, but it was sort of like, Hey, how to handle these types of situations. And um, we tried to imbue a lot of humor in it. Twitter did a really good job of like, you know, Dick, the CEO was a former stand-up comic. Um, you know, we had really funny routines at our, at our, um, at our tea times or our sort of our recurring town halls. Humor wound up being something uh, as a way to sort of like remind you of humanity and sort of, and, and just sort of, and create interest in this thing that I'm reading from HR um, just wound up being a very simple thing that we did to kind of create almost an interest. Um, we try to imbue a lot of humor into in just our manager playbook, which I would never, I would never get to do that at shell. So, um, you know, that was, that was one thing that we did. Yeah. You know, I remember that employer brand video that you guys did probably right around the time that uh, you were there as at Twitter, the future is you. 
and uh it's fantastic that was uh that that was yeah that was uh that was really good anti-recruiting video yeah yeah exactly i like the 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 intentional bad editing it was uh it was it was solid you 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 took employer brand videos to a different place and i uh, i i dug it um one of the things that uh kind of during your time at, at twitter uh you know towards the end of your role there you were in a position where uh, the the head of HR left and you were kind of moved into an interim head role and you know that that's a great opportunity to to stretch in many cases I think in other cases you know it it, it can always be a bit difficult to manage when people that were you know peers of yours are now direct reports and I'm just curious from you know from somebody who who's also been through that like what was that experience like for you what what did the what were some of your kind of Takeaways. How did you manage that transition when you were asked to take over the team? Yeah. So yeah, my boss was on. She was on maternity leave. Um, okay. And got it. That actually just coincidentally, I don't think she would have planned this, but it was it was just wound up wound up being right through the IPO process too. So she was on maternity leave, and so super super stressful time for everyone. Um, and so my 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 peers, they included you know the head of recruiting, the head of um, head of comp of L and D, HR operations. Um, international HR. And I guess one thing that made it work was um, we all had a really good relationship. I think we trusted each other. I think there was, there was not really a dynamic that I would, I would say, say was, um, was political in any way that there was anyone who was angling for a position. I think we, we each kind of had a role and in doing those roles, we trusted, we respected, we communicated with each other. There was certainly a lot of stress through that. Um, I guess, but I, I guess if it was, if, if there was one thing I, I did that sort of helped me was just sort of, you know, kind of operate from point of view of trust and, and trust and, and respect in terms of each of them as a functional leader, I was really not going to tell them how to be a better head of recruiting or how, you know, how to manage HR systems, you know, any better than they already knew what I could maybe do was try and be a servant leader, right? So try and be someone where, you know, a servant leader model, I'm, I'm, I'm almost sitting next to you, right? Like I'm not like in an org chart. I'm not like above you in any way. I'm, I'm kind of sitting next to you and you need information, feedback, you know, resources, decisions made in order to do your job. And so I'll, I'll go take those. I'll go take those as my to-do list to make sure you're getting information around, you know, how, how Dick thinks about this new L&D program, you know, or, or something that um, one of the executives are struggling with in sort of, you know, engineering, engineering hiring. And I'll, I'll circle back with you and I'll make sure we're closing this off and I'll give you the feedback and I'll try and give you an indication to where I think the executive team wants, you know, X to go. So I, I guess that was, you know, without even really knowing it, that was, I think, probably the first moment that I truly felt like I, I was going to try and operate as a servant leader. And I just came up, then I found later, later on that there was this thing called servant leadership that I still subscribe to today. That's that's what made it work, at least for me. Uh, my colleagues might say something differently, but uh, that's a, that's how I approached it. Got it. And that's that's I think smart because uh, your your point around um, you know you're not going to tell somebody running global recruiting for Ticketmaster how to recruit more effectively, right? Like that's their domain. Uh, it's more of like how can you enable their success? How can you how can you support them? I think that 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 makes a ton of sense, and it does take you out of any of that dynamic, or even if you didn't have that trust, where there's kind of a any any you know negative perception of what that relationship um, would become. So that's uh, that's really interesting. You know, when you left Twitter, you you found yourself kind of in a similar role. Uh, actually, from there, kind of running people at Zendesk, where you you know oversaw three x growth over three years. So you continued with that high growth 
you know, high scale kind of trajectory. And then for the last two years, you've been uh, in another similar role, kind of driving growth, uh, leading the people team, a people in places team at Niantic, uh, which is another kind of high growth opportunity. So for listeners that aren't familiar with Niantic, can you just give a quick uh, overview of what they do? Sure. So Niantic um, is essentially an augmented reality tech company. So we have a, a platform called the Niantic Real World Platform um, that is, um, you know, advanced technology in, in augmented reality, understanding the world around you through computer vision and machine learning and artificial intelligence. So that through your phone or through um, through lenses um, that you can overlay information, you can overlay digital information on the real world. Um, to experience it differently. And so Pokemon Go is kind of like the, the best, um, sort of the best example of that. Um, it's, a, it's, a fun, it's a fun little game that's just kind of been a runaway hit um, using, using your geolocation uh, data and using, using information around you to kind of overlay this experience, to collect, to collect Pokemon, to explore your communities, to capture videos, uh, capture photos uh, of Pokemon in a park, you know, and, and you're next to them. Um, that's what we do. And so the, the future of the company is a lot in this augmented reality tech, which we think is going to be a hundred billion dollar industry in the next couple of years. It's going to change the way people experience, you know, computing. Um, so I run, I run the people team here and when I joined, there's about 150 people and uh, we're about 550 now. Great. So what does your people team look like? Uh, how, how is your team kind of structured to support that growth? So the team, when I, when I got in, I saw um, immediately there was a very good recruiting function already in place, which was a lifesaver for me. Um, there was a good head of recruiting named Marissa. She's really talented. She's built a really good team. Um, they're, very, um, they're very structured and they're very, they use advanced technology and they have really consistent practices they, they put in place, which um, you know, has done a good job of trying to eliminate bias um, and, and build um, diverse teams. So the recruiting team runs up to Marissa. I have um, then a more of a traditional kind of um, HR function. And in that, I have um, a head of total rewards, um, David W. I've got a head of the business partner function, which is Lauren. I've got a HR operations under Jason, uh, diversity inclusion under Trinidad. And then, then I've got a, a sort of an office team where that's, that's, the, that's the places part um, and, and you know, a mixture of kind of real estate and workplace experience. Interesting. And so I'm a, you know, as a, I'm a admitted tech nerd and I'm, I'm really bullish on the potential of, of augmented reality and I've seen it, uh, I've seen its application in some really interesting ways. And I'm curious, you know, obviously being in that space, having access to some tools that uh, others may not, you know, does, does augmented reality work its way into your recruiting and kind of people operations in any way? Yeah, I think one one way one way augments really works its way into um, into recruiting is is just people will say I've played your game. So um, in, in a counterintuitive way to answer your question, um, augmented reality um, as as its own sort of phenomenon is the thing that is oftentimes a hook for people. You know, an otherwise you know very happy engineer at Google or LinkedIn or something who who would have never heard of Niantic has heard of Pokemon Go and they, 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 know, they know Niantic from that. So they know it from this thing, from this augmented reality that is the reason why they answer the call because they think it's so fascinating. It's something new. It's, it's something different, right, than like SaaS or like a, you know, Zendesk was a help desk product. But people, people are, are rarely passionate about help desks um, as, right. as a person. But there is this passion from people playing it. Um, Pokemon Go, Ingress, Harry Potter... Um, that has been um, one one very powerful way just to just to bring them in. We're we're still not using, I don't think, augmented reality quite yet 
in terms of the technology to create actually like as an example, an onboarding experience, like, you know, you you onboard at Niantic by opening your phone and you see, you see a presentation in augmented reality, or you, you can see, you can see where your desk is by opening your phone and sort of, Oh, it's over there in the corner. Um, We're not, we're not there yet, but that's probably the future for us. Yeah. I mean, I could see you almost having like a a walking tour where at every desk or, you know, cube, there could be a little pop-up with that person's name and, you know, interesting information about them and what they do. And so kind of at any point, even beyond this onboarding, you could walk around and be like, oh, hey, I know, you know, this person, or I didn't know they were into this. Like I, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool to think of the different applications that, uh, that you could use in-house for that. One, one thing is that employee experience, um, you know, in onboarding, um, Yenny, who runs our social impact team, she'll, she'll take new hires on day one on a walking tour around the ferry building and playing the game Ingress or, or Pokemon Go, whichever, whichever your, you know, your heart desire. We'll play the game and we'll experience this together and we'll sort of like immediately get ourselves in the head of the players um, and what they experience. The intent being that we like we believe when this technology that if you get outside, if you actually explore, there's a way to use tech for good um, that can help that can help people. Um, we know that sort of getting outside, walking, um, you know, it's better for your mental health than just sitting sitting in a room playing a console video game all day. I think if we can get people outside. You reconnect the, the new hires right on day one with the impact this has on people just by playing the game. Yeah, and so you know, Pokemon Go is a really interesting uh, game because that caught fire and became a, a global phenomenon in, in a really short period of time. And I'm just curious, you know, from from an insider's perspective, what was it like inside the company as that was blowing up? So that the, the initial blow up was probably about a year before I arrived. I've heard stories of this. I'll, I'll tell I'll tell a couple of quick stories. Um, I think certainly people were not ready for that for that initial just explosion of growth. I mean, you know, the number of, of tickets that had to be logged, you know, for um, for sort of you know kind of player issues or the servers going down was just um, you know truly truly a rocket ship. And um, you know, they they had this this event called Pokemon Go Festival where once a year people go to Chicago, about 20, 20, 30,000 people will go to Chicago to play the game in a park. And they did this for the first time ever amidst that hyper growth. And um, thinking this could be kind of fun, let's get players out to Chicago and we'll try this out the very first, the very first year. And um, it really, it really, they, a lot of things crashed, right? Just the, the servers crashed, like the, you know, it was way too many people, they were not ready for it. And the CEO stood outside, you know, in the heat, you know, for, for eight hours answering questions. And just uh, interesting thing was uh, people talk about internally, the story of Niantic um, is very much grounded in that very first Pokemon Go Fest where everything was going wrong. People didn't point fingers at each other. Instead, what they did was they remained empathetic. They remained kind to each other amidst, amidst passion and sort, of, and sort of frustration from the players. They leaned into it as opposed to sort of hiding and that, that kind of formed the basis of the culture, that very first, you know, admittedly very difficult period, um, kind of galvanized the team around this very empathetic sort of player-focused mentality that, you know, sort of like kept people in the moment of pressure as opposed to recoiling. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and you know, speaking of empathy, you had recently written a post about empathy, courage, and privilege that really resonated with me and I think a lot of, a lot of readers on LinkedIn what motivated you to write that? Where did that piece come from? I guess as I've gotten deeper in my HR career, I, I've, you know, I, I, I feel like I've, um, uh, any moment I'm going to fall, fall prey to disenchantment, you know, to just, to sort of seeing, to seeing HR, you know, as, 
um, you know, a, a corporate um, a corporate entity that isn't here to do good, that is um, that doesn't make you know that doesn't take tough stands, that doesn't you know that actually doesn't advance the needle on on culture and, and progress um, within organizations. And so I saw that I saw I guess what I saw around me was um, amidst um, diversity inclusion conversations. I saw what I perceived to be, you know, relatively um, low stakes takes from from leaders, from organizations, um, you know, sort of changing your logo on your, you know, changing your logo to a, a rainbow logo for one month and then never, never engaging again in a conversation around um, you know, LGBT rights. Um, I, I saw I saw myself getting disenchanted and I was almost writing that letter to myself, frankly. Um, I wasn't writing that as about someone, someone who I was disappointed with in the world. I was writing that to myself to remind myself that, um, you know, we have a path forward as people leaders and it's going to be difficult. And, you know, we have to remind ourselves myself as a cis white male, I have to remind myself of privilege. I have to remind myself that doing good things um, requires empathy and it's going to require a courageous stand. And, and if, I, if I remind myself that I'm privileged, that oftentimes I might be nodding my head, but not actually doing anything. And I got to lean into the direction of doing things. Yeah, and that's. Uh, I'm glad that you kind of tied that piece back to courage because I think that that is, it's a trait that I'm definitely seeing more of in modern people leaders. You know, it, particularly ones that are. You know, I think when you when you look at the profile of a CHRO years ago, it's this, you know, infallible, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, unapproachable or maybe in some cases overly approachable, but not you know impactful. Uh, Leader, and I think that there is when you look at modern people executives today, they have this. You know, they're they're, sh they're shedding any of those veneers of infallibility, and they're being much more candid and open about you know their own struggles. And I think through that, they're able to connect with their employees uh, even more. And you know, you'd shared a story with me about kind of going through uh, being in an all hands meeting where you decided to kind of open up a side of yourself. To employees that uh, that they they didn't know, and so why was that why was that important to you to do? What what kind of led you in that moment to open up? Yeah, I think the um, this this all hands meeting was um, a fireside chat that one of our leaders, Omar, had decided to set up, um, in, in in partnership with a, a YouTube influencer named Mystic Seven, who has a huge following on Pokemon Go. The two of them had just talked about mental health, and each of them were very open about mental health. And, and struggles they've had or their families have had. And, and they each found this connection between each other around mental health. And Omar decided to, you know, to work with Mystic 7 to do a fireside chat at Niantic. And amidst this, Omar knew that I was passionate about this. I don't think he knew why I was passionate about it. He just saw that I was interested in introducing a tech solution that's called Spring Health, which is kind of on-demand therapy. But he said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you tag along? And maybe you can, at the end, you could talk about how to use Spring Health and I'll, I'll hand the microphone to you. And so as they had this very passionate and vulnerable chat, um, without even really thinking about it, Omar handed me a microphone and said, hey, why don't you talk about spring? And I just started talking about why I was personally passionate about this was because, you know, um, months prior to this, I struggled with my mental health. I had a lot of, um, you know, really um, negative repeating thought patterns, um, you know, where I, I thought I was going to lose it. I have two I have two kids at home. I have a wife. And I, I thought, like, I had these, these personal sort of struggle with depression that I was I was unprepared for. And it, it was in that moment when I relate, when I sort of realized what these two were talking about, I saw, hey, this, this, is my, this is my opportunity as a leader to sort of just also similarly share. I struggle with this. And I was sharing, I was sharing exactly what I was thinking about in my mind 
about, you know, um, lo- losing for losing my, my sort of my passion in life and just sort of like thinking there's going to be an end coming up soon for me. And just kind of sharing that just kind of sentence after sentence, I was kind of like my mind went numb. I don't, I don't even remember exactly what I shared, but I just knew immediately my relationship suddenly changed with all the employees in the room because there was a different reason for why I was talking about this and talking about this, this solution called spring health beyond just, it's a good thing to do as a, as an employer. It's, it's actually, it's because I struggle with mental health. I struggle, I've struggled with my own mental health in the past. And, um, this is something I just talked about in this conference just recently. So it's, it's been something on my mind personally, but also something I'm seeing others in the workplace. Um, the stats are mind boggling on what's happening in mental health in the United States right now. But it was just without thinking about it, it was just, it was just my opportunity to sort of share personally what it meant to me. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I think that the, the conversation around mental health is really still a, a whisper in the broader conversation of, of HR and people topics. And you know, I'm glad you did that. I had been through my own mental health issues after loss in my life. And I found that, you know, going to going to therapy and then, you know, helped me immensely personally, but then opening up about that experience, you know, writing about it, writing about my, you know, what I was going through. I, I found that so many friends and colleagues and contacts, particularly men, right? Because I think as men, we so many of us, you know, are are hardwired to to feel a certain way around mental health and kind of carry our burdens in silence. And you know, you've seen the statistics; it's, it's literally killing us. And I think the more we're comfortable opening up about our own struggles, the more we're comfortable uh, opening up and being vulnerable about the things that we're going through, and and why and how you know therapy oftentimes is a way to help us navigate that and deal with things that consciously we can't even see, um, you know, I think is huge. And so when you think about kind of the role of, you know, as, as a conversation around mental health gets louder, um, how do you see companies and, and HR leaders beginning to shift their approach to, you know, really supporting their employees in that regard? Yeah, I, I've been, I've been floored by the statistics here. And, and like, I, I just, I mean, just recently, Saw that suicide rates are the highest they've been since World War II. You know, so so veterans coming home impacted by by PTSD um, in one of the you know the largest conflicts you know the world's ever seen. We we our suicide rates are as high as that period um, right now. And um, college grads, college grads today have a suicide rate of three x that of college grads in the fifties. So millennial mental health, um, anxiety, and depression is increasing. So what can HR leaders do? You know, one very simple thing we can do is find find the opportunity for the discussion, whether it's a fireside chat or you just, you know, you as an HR leader, you have coffee with a, with a VP who says they've had this struggle. They want to talk about it. They don't know how. Let's create a forum. Let's create a forum to talk about, you know, the struggle. Um, one of our leaders talks about it. He calls it the black dog, which is the euphemism um, Churchill used to talk about depression. He re- Churchill used the black dog to refer to depression. And just talking about it. Um, in a way that says, you know, that like, I struggle with this. Do you struggle with it too? What do you do that? It, it's seemingly, it's seemingly simple, but I think sometimes HR leaders would, would lean against that because it's like, oh, that's, that's private. That's like HIPAA compliance violation. We're going to like enter into the territory. Just, just, just refer people to the EAP. That's your solution. Um, when you look at what companies like EY and Starbucks are doing, um, but, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the, the things they're doing are simple. They're not huge monetary solutions. They are just creating a discussion, a forum, leader-led discussions, 
um, a series, you know, um, um, EY calls it the RUOK series, where a leader will just sort of talk about, you know, like how they have changed over the years, things they've changed, they've struggled with personally, and then field questions. And maybe some of those questions will be like, hey, here's something I do to actually help. And um, so that's what we did. We, we and, and like from that, a Slack channel emerged. Like these, these are not, these are not like major things. I think the HR leader just needs to lean in the discussion and find that opportunity for it. Could be about masculinity. It could be about empathy. It could be about even something that is only tangentially related to mental health. But creating the opportunity to discuss these things and doing it on, on a semi-recurring basis gets it out in the open. Starts to get things to be like destigmatized and like. You know, maybe, maybe at a certain point, you know, the, the sort of the, the male, the masculine sort of like hold it in. Don't talk about it. That suddenly starts to change by seeing other people talk about it and just getting getting the help actually talking about it is one of the key ways that people get control uh, of their depression or anxiety. It's just starting to actually get help and talk as opposed to holding it in. Yeah, well, I just want to say, you know, I, I appreciate your leadership and efforts in the space because I do think. When you when you have people that are willing to kind of you know set that tone and talk openly about you know their own circumstances, I, I think it does make it easier for others to to speak out and in some cases seek help if they need it, and, and that makes that makes a world of difference. So I think uh, all the suggestions you have, I think, are really valid. And if you're an HR leader listening to this, and you know you're thinking about creating some of those kind of programs within your own company. Um, there's lots of examples out there you can look to. And, um, you know, Spring Health is a, why don't you give a quick overview of Spring Health? I know you touched on that briefly, but uh, just give a, a quick overview on exactly what they do, because I know that's another potential resource. So Spring Health is a, is a tech solution to basically connect people to um, licensed clinical therapy uh, uh, within within like 24 hours. So the, the, um, the unfortunate reality about psychotherapy is that only one in 10 psychotherapists are accepting new patients. Patients and about 84% of people do not get the help that they need for mental health. One big reason being that as you try and navigate your HMO or your PPO, um, they're just either not accepting new patients or there's a barrier to entry or you try, you get connected with one and then you didn't match with that person and then you give up. And then so people just don't get the help. And so um, the, the team at Spring Health saw that there was actually you know, quite a few psychotherapists out there who um, wanted to help people and were licensed. But they need, we needed to find a way to get them into um, the network of, of, of employees. And so the Spring Health Solution does a clinical diagnostic. You do it, you could do a diagnostic online. It gives you a risk profile, not a diagnosis, but it gives you a risk profile of something that you might be struggling with, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, ADHD. And then within 24 hours, you get set up with a care counselor who walks you through your risk profile, sees what you're struggling with, asks you then, do you want to try and get set up with someone in your network or in our network? And if it's in their network, they'll get you that person potentially the next day. And you get set up with a licensed psychotherapist to begin your therapy um, uh, experience. And, and if not, you can also get set up in your, in your own network. And they'll do the heavy lifting to, to pair you and match you with someone in your Cigna or your Kaiser network. And so it, it fast forwards you to therapy is the way I look at it. It just gets you, it gets you in the hands of, of therapy and gets you the help that you need um, where we know that, you know, kind of trying to navigate your own network, um, most people don't get the help they need. Yeah, well, that's great, and I think that 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 kind of uh, of a resource can be a, a life changing resource for employees. So that's definitely uh, interesting, and I and I expect that that that's a a sector we'll start to see some more uh, in as this conversation continues to elevate. Um, you know, David, from you, we we covered I think in terms of getting into you know vulnerability and and courage and empathy and you know some of these traits they're they're very to me kind of uh, emblematic of twenty first century HR. But I'm curious from your perspective. 
How would you define 21st century HR? 21st century HR to me, I love, I love this question. Um, I think of, of 21st century HR is how to um, re-engineer people programs towards humanity. Um, I guess, I guess why I would look at that is I think that we've probably entered, we've, we've, we've entered and then exited a period, um, at least of, of U.S. industry and the U.S. workplace that was largely grounded in, you know, Taylorism and sort of, um, and, and abuses, um, abuses in the workplace, uh, and, and employment law having to rise up to meet that and sort of create, um, protectionism and sort of engineer rules and protections for employees, which are still very powerful and important. But now there's there's a period there's a period now where where we're, we've we've kind of lost touch of our humanity as part of that we've sort of engineered people functions we've engineered um, programs not towards humanity but more towards risk aversion and towards you know sort of creating rules in the workplace as opposed to understanding the potential of humans and what makes us human and and, and empathy and and kindness and and we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, um, mental health rates, uh, anxiety inc- incidents of depression uh, skyrocketing. Um, people are having less children. Society is changing, I think, in a way that feels as though we've lost connection. We've lost connection um, with what it means to be a human, particularly at work. And we're going to lose we're going to lose people. We're going to lose them. We're going to lose their productivity, their potential, their passion. And I think 21st century HR is about reengineering um, people practices towards humanity um, and, and I hope that's, I hope that's the case in, in the years ahead. Yeah, no, I really like that. Look, uh, I think that, that, uh, that definitely, that definitely sits with me. I, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to think on that a bit more cause I think you've, you've got a lot there, but I, I definitely like the direction that you're taking that. Um, from your perspective, we, we talk a lot. I think one of my, uh, the ways I love to close this podcast is, is I'm, you know, exposing listeners to new leaders. I love to also learn about kind of new leaders. And, and from your perspective, when you think about, kind of the field of 21st century HR and, and your kind of peers and fellow practitioners that are really kind of pushing the boundaries of the field, who comes to mind? You know, who, who do you think is doing amazing work out there that inspires you? You know, my, I guess one of my, my, my best mentors um, in my career, Janet Van Heis, who's now at Cloudflare, when I think about parental inclusion and parental leave, just, just a, a very early, um, you know, a early advocate for it. Um, I think a lot of, of uh, HR leaders in tech can benefit from the work that that uh, Janet did, and now with a group that she works with called Ten Lab. So, so Janet is fantastic um, as a mentor. I also think about there's there's two people in my network who I always look to for their the research, um, the research and the science. Um, Itamar Goldmines, um, who's um, you know who's doing some consulting work right now, but is one of the most like steeped in research, um, you know, HR practitioners uh, I've ever met. Um, and a colleague of his, Steve McElfresh, um, who, who's also been doing a lot of really great consulting work and steeped in research. I, I love them for their, for their research-backed um, and evidence-backed um, insights that they offer. Awesome. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. I really enjoyed the conversation, and thanks for raising some really important points. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening.
We'll see you next episode.